0: Welcome back to the africa is a country podcast my name is william Shorkey, and i'm the deputy editor of africa is a country as well as the host of this which is africa is a country's weekly talk and interview show on politics and culture happening on the continent today is a very special episode we want to celebrate the life and work of a very special person in the africa is a country community And this is in the wake of a collection of writing from this person, who is Binyavanga Wainana. So a a month ago or a few weeks ago, the edited collection, How to Write About Africa, was published with Hamish Hamilton. And it's a trailblazing collection of writing from Binyavanga Wainana's Extraordinary Life. If you don't know who he was, he was a seminal author and activist, remembered as one of the greatest chroniclers of contemporary African life. After his death in 2019, this groundbreaking collection brings together his pioneering work on the African continent for the first time. A rule breaker of wry satire and piercing wisdom, this collection includes many of Binyavanga's most critically acclaimed pieces, including the viral satirical sensation How to Write About Africa, which greatly inspires the title of Africa as a Country, and we will talk a bit more about how that came to be and his writing fearlessly across a range of topics from politics, international aid, cultural heritage, and redefining sexuality. This is a remarkable illustration of a writer at the height of his power. And to talk about his life and his work, I'm very pleased to announce who we have on the show. The first is Ashal Prabala, who edited this collection. And Ashal is a writer, filmmaker, and public health activist who lives in Bangalore in India. We have as well Neo Musangi who is an experimental self-taught queer artist whose practice uses performance, text, visual and audio installations. NEO has participated in various group exhibitions and is part of the queer arts collective as well as String Fabulations. NEO also teaches gender studies at American and St. Lawrence universities. And we are joined by Dio Forster, who is an internationally published novelist who also has a parallel career in financial inclusion. Originally from the Gambia, she lived in Kenya for several years. And Sean Jacobs, who's the founder and editor of Africa as a Country, might pop in and out. So thanks to all of you for joining to talk about an incredibly special person. And congratulations, Ashal, on editing this volume and bringing it together. I think I want to start with the first question, which is, how did this collection of writing come together? Which parts of Vanga's career does it cover? And what was the original
1: inspiration? Thanks, Will. And thanks for having us here. I'm so excited. Listen, you did leave out something though. The most important part of uh, Neo Musangi's presence here is uh, that Neo has uh, PowerPoint slides for us. Uh, a short presentation.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, no one has any PowerPoint slides. Uh, I'm so happy to have this more kind of informal conversation about this book um, because one of the things I think when this started off, um, I was so concerned with is that it didn't get put out as another worthy book that worthy people could buy uh, but not actually read, right? Because I felt that this was the very opposite of that kind of book. It started off, I think, partly in the sort of uh, frozen feeling I think that many of us had after Binya died when I think no one was quite sure uh, as to what to do. It was sudden. There were several difficult months leading up to his death uh, and I think several people who knew him well didn't really have much contact with him uh, just before he died. I I certainly was uh, completely frozen and I didn't quite know how to react. I remember. One or two people who knew that I knew him reached out to ask if I could write an obituary or some kind of remembrance, and I had absolutely no words. There was just no way that I could say anything coherent, and I had complicated feelings, of of course, deep sorrow, but also love and loss and guilt uh, and a range of emotions. Uh, As things settled down and as things went along, I think uh, his family, his three siblings, uh, who are who've always been very supportive of their brother and uh, incredibly proud of his writing career, every aspect of him, Uh, and those siblings are Jimmy and uh, Shiro and Chiki, otherwise known as James, uh, June and Melissa, decided that they wanted to do something more with all of the writing that he had. And at the very same time that they were thinking about this, uh, his agent, Uh, Sarah Chalfont and uh, his publisher, Simon Prosser and Hannah Chuku at Hamish Hamilton, also had roughly the same idea. He had signed contracts years ago uh, to produce two collections of essays which hadn't been fulfilled. And so we decided to go ahead and fulfill those contracts. Uh, And I think we knew by this point that there was an enormous body of work. It was mostly obscured, none of it, or very little of it, was actually available or. uh, curated in a way that people could consume and and understand. And when we started putting it together, it was very clear that uh, it was very easy to put together this one collection, which represents uh, roughly about half the best work that he ever produced, a mixture of nonfiction and fiction. But it covers a span of uh, 1996 to about 2008. So it's sort of the first half of his writing career. And many in many ways also sort of the fun half, uh, where you know, work that he produced prior to becoming world famous, where he could take incredible chances because there was nothing to lose, uh, and he often did. <laughs> uh, and so it turned out to be an absolute delight uh, to to edit and put together, and almost can't quite believe that something like this hadn't been done before, because we could have uh, a very long time ago. Mm. I, I'm, I wanna talk about, uh,
0: the piece that made him famous in in a second, but I think before that, when when one reads the obituaries and commemorations to to Binyavanga uh, you uh, published the forward to the edited collection with with Africa as a Country recently. Uh, now you wrote an obituary after he passed away, and it's just remarkable to read about how incredible a person Binyavanga was and the profound impact that he had on everyone who met. Um, now, I'd like to read something from the butchery that you wrote um, after he died. You said, Binyavanga Wainana taught me to love viciously, recklessly, and at a fast pace. Binyavanga taught me that to love someone was also to commit to care work and to embrace a life of being conflicted. So I'm just interested to hear from all of you. When did you first encounter Binyavanga, when did you first meet him? What was that like? And what was it like after he passed away? And I'm aware, of course, it must be incredibly hard to speak about it, but what was it like? Yeah. Uh,
3: shall I go? Uh, I met Binyavanga in Kenya after I'd been living living in the US and I Was trying to write for the first time as, as as a grown up, and at the time they had published in Kenya the first the first volume, of Wani, and were running, essentially um, evenings in one of the cafes in 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 Nairobi where you could turn up with a piece of work and um, stand up and just read it out loud. Now I'd never. I'd never come across anything like this before. I turned up, I didn't know a soul and there was Biniwanga in his element at a table full of tales, full of humour, full of belly rolling laughs um, and welcoming everybody, Um, wanting curious about me, wanting to find out about me, opening doors, um, allowing me to um, write um, and it, it was a time of a kind of opening of, um, we've all been given permission to figure out how to write and how to approach what we wanted to say. And my first impression of Binyavanga was, wow, who's this person? What is he doing? Um, Because he he was generous to a fault. He was able to include people who he had never met just because he wanted to be kind. Um, He was able to give of himself in a way, I, I actually had never come across before. Um, and that basically created a, full, a community of people I've kept in touch with to this day. Other writers um, who probably started writing around the same time as well, including uh, Muthoni Garland, who's now a very, very close and dear friend. Um, and so the community that Binya created in Nairobi at this time just became a vibrant community that kickstarted lots of, of people's um, interest, long term interest in writing and friendships.
0: Thanks, Dayo. Um Neil, would you like to say some words?
4: Um, I mean, I honestly can't remember when I met Binya, <laughs> which is really strange. Um, of course, as a student of literature, I met Binyar through his work um, while I was, well, when he started Pwani or with others. And um, much later, I remember meeting Binyar at a bar in Joburg. And I had gone out with um, my curator artist friend. And we went to a gay bar, obviously. And Binyar Vanga just shows up and he already knew who I was. I already knew who he was. So we had this kind of like, weird estranged kenyan moment um, of bonding and just feeling like oh yeah it's nice to be in job we can be a gay- at a gay bar you know like really mediocre stuff. um so and i think that's the first time that i saw Binya dance and i was so offended by how he could not coordinate his body i was like <laughs> what kind of african are you that you can't dance but you love dancing right so he had like i keep telling people that Binya had two left feet and he he would always get up to dance and everybody's looking at him and i'm kind of feeling like you're so embarrassing you know like sit down uh, <laughs> so yeah i met Binya through that but as i've said before um i think Binya became a very very dear close friend of mine and every time i hung out with these close friends other close friends i always felt odd that i did not belong to this group i think in some ways in the literati crowd, I was one of his kind of younger friends. Um, so yeah, and I think in his kind of last decade, uh, that friendship morphed into kind of um, something that meant a lot to me and to him as well. Yeah, so that's that's it. I can't remember when I first met him in person. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because uh, Ashal, I,
0: I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the incredible story that you recount in your foreword of how you and two others, one of them being Vinyavanga landed up at the village in, in London, uh, which was also a gay bar, which seems to be the, the running theme of, of meeting Binyar stories. Uh, can you tell us how you first met him?
1: Yeah, that, that is a funny story. It does seem to be a theme as well. Uh, unbelievably, you know, and, and the truth is, I, don't, I haven't said this to anybody because I don't think anyone would actually believe it. But unbelievably, the very first time that I met Binyar was when he wrote me an email out of the blue, because he had read a story. The Sunday Times in South Africa, I lived in Joburg at the time. The Sunday Times kind of allowed I and a a wonderful person called Cascarino Valentine, who's Cameroonian, living in Joburg, and now Benedictine monk in Rome. You see, how already the story becomes unbelievable. Anyway, but he and I did a series of articles on being sort of brown in black nightclubs and black in brown nightclubs and also stri- strip clubs in inner city Joburg. And so we did a whole series of things about really kind of minor underground racial oddities, uh, which honestly we thought this is no one else in the world except us were going to read and like. And then out of the blue, I got an email from Binyamanga Wainana, uh, uh, who I just about knew about because of uh, How to Write About Africa, which had been written then. And a f- common friend of ours, Mike Vasquez, had been trying to connect us. And so I think he, he knew my name uh, and wrote to me out of the blue. And then we started talking on email and then we met in person in the United States. Uh, and it was the oddest kind of meeting because five seconds, I think, into meeting him, we're just best friends. And it was that very sure, certain feeling that I would know this person a very long time. Uh, I can't quite describe it, but we were literally instant best friends from the five seconds after we first met. Uh, And then we went to London and, uh, you know, Binya, as his custom, was wearing these boobos that he had got made in Dhaka. We had picked up this friend who was in a sari and had flowers in her hair and so on. I was wearing a kuta and um, a shalwar and chapals. And uh, this really kind man who's actually, I think, uh, black and British at the gay bar just refused to let us in because he was convinced that we were lost. <laughs> and there was like strippers sort of this far away from our face. <laughs> so we were trying to tell him, yes, we know, we know, we just have to get to a birthday party downstairs. And he was being so kind though. And he was just saying, I, I promise you, you don't. This is not where you are trying to get to <laughs> because that's not here. You know, my kindred spirits, three tropical people in tropical costume, completely lost in big bad London, Uh, was hilarious. It was really, really hilarious. Uh, I'll never forget that one moment. That's an excellent story. Uh, I want to bring in Sean Jacobs, who's
0: largely been behind the scenes operating the stream for us, um, to tell us uh, how he met Benia. You're on mute, Sean. You're still on mute, Sean.
2: Terrible. I'm sitting behind the scenes, trying to make everything feel and look perfect, and then I put myself on mute. Now I was just going to say my story is less is less dramatic, um, and and is is more sort of like indirect. So, I had studied in the U.S. in the mid '90s, um, and I'd gone back to South Africa to live, you know, live there, work there. I was kind of with the intention of returning, and I remember. Uh, on weekends, the, the the quality of newspapers in South Africa, some people are going to hate me for this, is terrible. So the weekend newspapers are particularly terrible. And there was one newspaper in Cape Town um, that it had a section, like the, t- the TV listing section and the social pages, and sort of buried in the middle of it somewhere was a food column by a Kenyan writer. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? Because the writing, it was after a while, you basically, I was... I was—I just didn't like the writing in the local press, but I would go and buy this very bad newspaper. Somebody's going to figure this out. What newspaper I'm talking about? And would li- literally like a, make a byline for that part of the newspaper because I knew this, and it wasn't very—it wasn't a big, big column. And then later on, I started seeing him around the city, um, and then I, it turns out he was um, kind of connected to Chimurenga, which is a project, a literary magazine out of Cape Town, by. Tony Jabe and a group of other people Graham Aronson. I understand he um, he shared a house with Graham at some point so I kind of that's how I sort of you know I, so my relationship with him isn't that wasn't never that close but just to be around that kind of energy um, this this thing that dial describing arriving at, arriving at the readings and just noticing this like this massive energy so it, I, it's just this like, I, I discovered him I suppose more on the page and then then when I met him, he didn't disappoint because sometimes you meet people, you he I mean, wasn't necessarily a hero, but you meet people and then it turns out they're not, you know, what what, the, what they look on on the page. And Binyavanga wasn't like that. There was like a sort of realness to him.
0: Thinking about uh Binyavanga on the page, it's it's interesting, Sean. You talk about um his food writing, which is only something that I myself discovered was a significant part of his oeuvre um, after he'd passed away. Of course, the How to Write About Africa essay from 2005 is the most seminal of his writing. But Ashar, uh, you were describing earlier also that uh, his earlier stuff is his most fun stuff. It's his most experimental stuff. Dayu describing how Binya in personality and in writing sort of gave everyone permission to to be writers, and, and and I'm just curious to hear a bit more about that aspect of of Binya's writing. What does it consist in? Why why was he more than the how to write about Africa essay? And and why should we care about that about that earlier work?
3: I think um, it's it was his he was just curious about everything. So um, at one point, for example, um, I, I, I was born in the Gambia, and there was a, a, a literary festival of some sort in the Gambia. And it, the Gambia is one of the the smallest African mainland country, and in many ways, it had it hadn't quite caught up with the rest of the world. So. Binia came to this um, to this uh, uh, literary festival and he was it's just insatiable curiosity so one of the things he would notice things that of course I never noticed because I I grew up there so as in like in the 50s what we have as our way of uh, of doing outdoor adverts was basically you build a wall and you paint the advert on the wall. And I remember Binya pointing this out to me and basically his shoulders were shaking with laughter, just like, I cannot believe you live in a country like this. And at the same time, it was just what he was observing all around. Um, He would spot a young poet. This is in a completely different country. He would spot a young poet and say, oh, you've got talent. Come and talk to me. Just random people. Um, And he was very much a connector. So he did this. If you have a spark of anything, um, a spark of any any aspect of life that was slightly different, he would find it It, in Nairobi. He introduced us to, um, so come on, let's go into what they call the slums. Let's go into poorer areas. Let's go and find out more about Sheng. Let's go and talk to musicians and find out how they write their lyrics. And for me, what it did at the time was just open up this whole slew, this whole um, slew of new experiences, new kinds of people. The other thing that I know that he sparked in me and the group of people were around was um, an ability to self-examine. So there was lots of um, honest writing, lots of honest conversations. And the way you kind of cut through the small talk, cut through the crap and just get to what's important in life. And. I just remember Pina was in the center of all of these conversations. So um, in my house, we'd have Sunday brunches, for example, and then he'd come with a whole bunch of people that I didn't know. And we'd just keep the food coming. We'd just keep the drink coming. And brunch would become lunch and we become early dinner and people were still around, still talking. So he had this immense capacity to be curious, to find the right people and to connect people, um, it was magical, and I think that's what fed his writing.
0: Now, would you would you like to add to that? I mean, in your yeah, just just the way in which uh, seeing came together around Benia from that intellectual curiosity that. Dio mentioned you. You said when you'd first met him, Benya already knew who you were, what you were about, took you seriously, um, even before knowing you intimately. Uh, do you think that's something that embodied his his writing, as as Dayo was describing that deep curiosity and and just a, a genuine openness to the world around him, to experiencing it on its own terms, to being absorbed in it?
4: Um, I think one of Binyar's um, unspoken kind of lamentations was how other people that were in the writings or in the academy did not see the intellectual work of People that are doing work with uh, the hip-hop artists, for instance. Like when he started going to Dandora and he was interested in what they were making. Or at another instance that we kind of had a fallout. But he went to Senegal and he just he would just find these um, furniture makers by the roadside. And the next thing is committing to taking them to school in Joburg. For some reason, he was always taking people to school in Joburg um, to go kind of refine their craft. And he had a very... I think a deep pain about how other people did not take this work seriously, how other people did not take the intellectual labor of kind of craftsmen or people who lived in formal settlements seriously, and that there was an idea of kind of what 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 is the canon of knowledge making. I think I had a lot of respect for him for doing that work because, I mean. Sometimes, of course, as most of his friends knew that he would take you to places that you totally did not feel safe in. Uh, It would take me to downtown Nairobi, which is a place that I don't choose to go to, but then he would insist that there's something happening there. And I think that's a really important way of co-creating knowledge, that he had a Weird way of getting into spaces that most people would not get into, and I I remember one time I was talking about. I kept reminding him that he was a babi. Now, babi in Nairobi speak is a child who's born of either middle class or upper middle class Nairobi parents, and usually, uh, as Kenyans, we kind of you you can look for signs of somebody who has grown up, you know, in money. (laughs) And I kept reminding Binya that, you know, you are Bobby, and I feel like you are risking my life. When I go to places that don't feel safe with you, then I'm going to get attacked because of you, because you look like you have money, even when I know you don't have money. Um, And I think that's the one way that he made, he gathered us. He gathered people in ways that I don't think we've found anyone else who can do that yet. And I don't think that can be replaced, but at the same time, I think it's something that the Kenyan cultural scene uh, generally is lacking at the moment since Binyas' death. There are people that I met through Binya, that if we do not repair this, I might not meet again, Uh, even when their work was really important. I might never see them again. I might never sit with them. We might never have, you know, taskers and dinners and Binyas' prolonged delayed food um messy kitchen, you know, kind of thing. And I, I really, I mean, I, as a friend, I think I miss that the most. That I want people to gather in the ways that Binya gathered us. I want to meet Binya's other friends or names that I've known about um even in his hard sense. Yeah. Roundabout way of saying that.
0: I mean I think that was that was beautifully said and just reading the details of these Large, grand feasts that Binya put together, and I think, as you described Noah, by the time the food was ready, everyone had already uh, had tons of Tuskers and were were drunk. And it's just this, yeah, remarkable capacity, as everyone is saying, to build community uh, around him. Uh, Ashal, what do you think Benya's vision for for, for writing was I mean he he and a bunch of other people started this journal in in Kenya called Kwani, which means so what what do you think he wanted that journal to achieve how do you think he thought of the circle of influence that he had as uh, a way to to realize a, a vision of writing I mean did he actually have that am I am I uh, imputing that on him um,
1: but if he did, what do you think it was? Well, so that's a great question. But before I answer, well, uh, I, I tell you what I thought of his vision for writing. I want to tell you about his vision for living without sleeping. Yes, uh, because you were talking about grand feasts and so on. And in fact, I think the, the, the last time I was at one of those grand feasts, I think, Dayo, you were there as well, uh, because it was when you still lived in Kenya. I have to say that every single time I met him, and it did not matter where we were, in which continent, in which country, what city, and we did meet, you know, in many continents, many countries, many cities, uh, the one thing that I consistently wanted to do, uh, I-, I could actually feel it and I began to preemptively feel it, you know, as sort of like a almost like some kind of PTSD in reverse is to sleep. Because every time I met him, there was too much to talk about, too much to do, and and there was no sleep involved in it somehow. I don't know how, you know. And so what I do remember distinctly is every single time I met him, I would leave. Sometimes I'd have to just extricate myself in order to go to sleep or I'd actually just go away to another country just so that I could go to sleep. It was amazing, but also incredibly exhausting. I have literally no idea how he did any of that. It's just I feel tired even now just thinking about that. Uh, And... On his taste for furniture, I just wanted to say uh, that, and and the insatiable curiosity that Dayu referred to, we were walking around Shivaji Nagar, which is a, a low-income, working-class area in Bangalore, very close to where I live, with a lot of second-hand furniture shops. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw these two... Exquisite old barber's chairs from probably the mid you know mid 20th century in India. You know, they were made with walnut wood and had this distressed uh, green leather and chrome, and they were gleaming and they were beautiful and they were on the road. And I immediately averted my eyes because you know I did not want to get drawn into some sort of harebrained scre- scheme to transport them across the world or something against my will, and then have to devote you know a year of my life or something to fulfilling that request. Uh, but binya was very you know he's very observant and so he saw me quickly have looked my eyes immediately saw those chairs and i could see the plan forming in his head and i was so mean to him i remember that particular instance i said absolutely not i am not doing anything with these chairs i am not sending them you know to Bard college in upstate new york i mean these chairs they literally look like like elephants you know they weigh a ton they're barber's chairs right and I, I, but I remember I was <laughs> I such panic because I just, there's no way. And I shouted at him, actually. I was really rude. <laughs> and he was completely taken aback. But it was exactly what he was planning in his mind, right? Which was, I'll buy these chairs. You find a way to ship them to me upstate New York. Like, I mean, something that like weighs as much as, you know, like a small ship or something like that. So um, it, it was hilarious, though. Look, you know, I want to say when we started talking about writing, we were talking about his interest in food. Sean's uh, very early interest in Binyavanga being through food columns. The curiosity about that time is that he was in Cape Town, which is ostensibly not a particularly friendly city to African food, right? In fact, he ran a catering business. And one of the reasons he had to stop it was uh, his clientele included people like very wealthy uh, housewives in Constantia, one of whom once asked him, along with catering, as he brought the food, if he could serve the food in a loincloth, um, because she felt it might be more authentic, uh, which was one of his more frustrating moments. But he was also quoted very often as an authority on food. So he became the kind of guy that you went to to get an idea of you know, what Ethiopian food was like. Or you know, He dabbled in this idea of a sort of pan-African cuisine that he was constantly trying, experimenting with multiple different ways. And I have to say, it, what is so unusual about this book? In fact, I know that Sean or someone else there has, uh, you know, a couple of images from the book. And uh, one one of the things that I think is so astonishing about this book is that uh, the first 10th of it, at least a 10th of this book, is devoted to essays about the life of food. I mean, truly about literally the sort of lusciousness of prawns on the Cameroonian coast and Somehow also the lusciousness of the people involved in shelling them and making them and then actual recipes in order to to make them. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there's an anthology of uh, uh, of writing anywhere that that combines that sort of depth into recipes and the life of food, you know, along with the. An essay on the political situation in Togo in 2010. Um, so I think that kind of range, it was really astonishing. The 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 surprising nature of his really deep sustained interest in a thing like food, but then also in a thing like the construction, the 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 market for female undergarments and the peculiarities of the way bras are wired in Togo. Which appears in an essay on Togo and is given sort of equal importance to, for instance, the sort of kleptocratic uh, (laughs) political uh, autocracy that runs the country, right? So there are two things he concentrates on there. Football, which is sort of the sideshow. Brass, which is sort of like the main piece. And politics, which are the other main piece. No, It's not even possible, I think, to conceive of a (laughs) serious writer going to a country and writing that essay. It's simply... uh, It's not conceivable. You know, it's not something that anyone would do. No one else would get away with except for him. Uh, I started, when we started writing, when we started putting together this book, I think thought of it as a bit of an act of love, you know, just personally and honestly, also maybe something driven by a little bit of guilt on my part. You know, I knew that very quickly into it. I'd spent just a couple of months on it at that point uh, to know that I wasn't doing it as an act of love. Uh, it wasn't out of a duty to him. It was out of a duty to art. The, the work is exceptional. I mean, it was exceptional in a way which I was even maybe slightly blinded to because we did know each other well. It's very hard, I think, in a way to consistently admire the work of somebody who's also a very close friend. I mean, I knew he was a good writer, I just did not know he was this exceptional. And I don't think it's some kind of, you know, romantic haze after his death. It's uh, It's exceptional. I haven't genuinely ever read to this date essays with that kind of confidence and dexterity and magnanimity in terms of what he was allowing uh, other people to experience and the interest in other people's lived experience, Uh, they really took my breath away, honestly. I I burst into tears on more than one occasion uh, just reading the work and trying to edit it and compile it and shape it into some form that people who don't know Binyabanga at all would uh, could see and digest. And I do have to say that uh, the same kinds of qualities that he tried to encourage in other writers, it was a delight to see him displaying how to use those qualities himself. I often thought he spent far too much time in cultivating a sort of writership. You know, many people talk about growing a readership, right? Like it's a very... Uh, sort of middle class value in terms of encouraging people to read but i think binyavanga's project was encouraging a writership he really wanted to make writers but it was also irritating because I, I, he was an exceptional writer and i felt there should be more of that in fact there was more of that we just you know didn't fully see i didn't fully see it i'm i'm really happy that it's there to see now it's writing that so absolutely deserves to be read um, i'm so glad it's out in the world and i'm grateful it's out in the world too and i mean
0: uh, you know, I think uh reading the collection and and being as astounded as as you were Shal, to just really appreciate how exceptional his writing was, um which you know I'd read a couple of of his pieces, but I don't think i'd I'd never encountered his pieces um as as extensively as i as I should have, and part of the beauty of this collection is that it does all of that for you and I suppose uh, a worry I have is that I'm from a I'm from a younger generation, um, and I suppose just as my writing career was starting to to take off, uh, Binya sadly sadly left us. Uh, and I think you know what I want to know is for for younger audiences who did not overlap with Binya when he was with us and when he was creating and and producing, what would you say his most important contribution to literary and intellectual culture has been? We've we've been, I suppose, touching on it throughout this entire conversation. But now, as you were saying just now, you're 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 also worrying that uh, I mean, Binya is irreplaceable. Um, but it seems that we can't even hope for for imitators because what he did was just so singular that to even begin to try and imitate it uh, feels like uh, a false errand. Um, yeah, What was it, do you think, that was the most important contribution that, that he made?
3: Um, for me, I think it's the importance of community. Um, I haven't stayed in touch with everybody who was part of that group, but there are few people, because of the depth of our conversations, I'm pretty sure that if I met them today, I would still be able to pick up and have a similar conversation uh, of great depth with them. So for example, actual who I haven't seen um, for, for several years. Um, I think so, as well as the importance of community, is the fact that you actually have to commit to that community and spend time in developing and cultivating it. I think it's a, it's a message that goes across generations across the decades. Um, the the second thing for uh, a new generation of writers would be, I guess, it's irreverence because I I feel that, um, binier was a very irreverent person. He he never took it, nothing was gospel. You could attack ideas, you know, ideas, not the people. Um, you could pursue unusual things, like what Achu was, was saying, trying to meld football with bras, um, and uh, that was and and that that immense curiosity that basically should drive you anywhere. Just go wherever the art, wherever your curiosity takes you, and try and deal with the subject matter in an very irre- irre- irreverent way. So I think for me, those would be the two things, the importance of community and building it and sustaining it, to, sustaining it yourself, and irreverence when you're writing. Well,
4: what, what, what would it be for you now? So I think one of the things that I think, because I'm, I don't consider myself such a good person, I thought Vinya was such a good person that he would be so generous to read drafts, right? Because reading people's creating writing drafts can be so exhausting. And so one of the things is that I remember even before Akwaeke Emezi had become as popular as they are now, Vinya um, had met them at the Farafina workshop. And for whatever reason, he decided that me and Akwaike had to be friends. And every almost every day for more than a month, he kept telling me to write to Akwaike, right? Like, write to them, invite them to Nairobi. And I was getting frustrated because I was like, Binya, you don't realize how this sounds like, right? <laughs> I can't write to a person that you met and i'm asking so he did the introductory email and he left it at that and now it became my job to invite akoyake to come visit um but also it wasn't just because i think because of his interest in spirituality and i think at the time akoyake was writing freshwater and he might have read bits of it he was just like this is somebody that we need to hang out with outside of our workshop so this goes on for a while and it's, it's kind of like a forced friendship. Um, I mean, that has morphed into other things, but I just thought you are so generous that you have time to read people's full manuscripts, give comments, and keep recruiting these young people. You know, And I, I thought, this is really a special generosity that you have that you feel like you are large enough to bring people in in a way that I've not seen in most other people, um, that he had the time, he made the time, he made young people and young writers um, especially feel really like their, their work was important. And that he would, because of that curiosity that Dyer and Achal are talking about, he had this thing that every time he read a draft, it felt like this is the best thing that he has read. And it didn't matter what you tell him. It was like, this is the best thing. I've never heard about this phenomenon. I've never seen anyone write about this this way. And I think that, for me, requires a particular kind of person. It really needs a particular kind of person to open themselves up in those ways. And in many ways, uh, an admirable thing about Binya the writer and Binya the person was that he didn't remember that he was famous. That did not matter to him enough times. That he completely forgot who he was and he was just this person, right? And I always wondered, like, there's nobody in Nairobi who doesn't know Binyavangawa inaina. So when he would wear his ridiculous earrings after a visit to Joburg, I was like, but people know you. What does this mean, right? You're going to be in the news. And then he's not in the news. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's, there, there are aspects of him that, for young people and that I feel like a loss is to have a person whose name is that big and to still take you seriously, regardless of how old you are and to make room for you to enter spaces and to make connections for you to actually meet the people that matter for whatever it is that you're doing. I think that's really, really special. Michelle, would you like to add?
1: We, uh, I, you know, Dayo, I'm really moved by uh, what Dayo and Neo have both said. I just, you know, everything they say, I feel like I can, I, you know, I feel it. In, you know, Dio will understand exactly what I mean. Yeah. Uh, by the way, so Dayo and I actually are an example. I think Neo and Dayo and I are. An example: We don't know each other that well, right? But we also know each other really well somehow, and we kind of really like each other. Dayo's come and stayed with me. I, I, Dio writes to me randomly. I write to her randomly. I don't. It's there's a very nice connection. We, none of us, by the way, would have this connection without bidya and Nails. In my case, Bina didn't even make it. I don't. I, literally, no idea uh, how we made it or whatever. But uh, there is this kind of sort of you know wider sort of. Binyar's World Wide Web, uh, which does kind of exist. I do want to say um, we organized a a public presentation of um, Binyar's life at Joburg, uh, in Joburg at Wits University. This was about a year before he died. So I think 2017 or 2018, I I don't fully remember, but it was not long before he died. He was in South Africa, very keen to move there, uh, was really interested in some way of being able to reside in the African continent on a place that he could recognize and love and enjoy and also just fully be himself and then which is not you know something that you could do everywhere and I think really appreciated what Jobo could offer him and so I organized it with him as a kind of job talk I suppose so we we held a lecture where a colleague an academic called Danai Mupotsa and I, uh, had a conversation with Binyavanga uh, in uh, a beautiful old room, uh, an amphitheater in uh, at Wits, in order to kind of entice Wits academics to give him a job. Uh, we didn't know quite what to expect. Uh, Binya was in a somewhat frail state. I was furious about that because I, I, I worked with him a little bit on uh, his medical condition and... I found that uh, he wasn't really taking care of himself very well. Uh, you know, his speech was slurring. Um, he, he was doing things that he shouldn't like, like drinking and smoking and so on at that time. And uh, I just l- looked and and sort of, you know, behaved in a way that was a bit heartbreaking for me because I'd seen a down, we'd have, you know, I'd really worked hard with him to try to get him up to a really good place. And then he had slipped and was in this bad place. So I had... I I didn't quite know what to do. And he wasn't very voluble as well as a result of that. He was slow, he took longer to think. The words didn't come out that clearly, they were slurred. Um, The hall was packed, just absolutely packed, right? And it was almost overwhelmingly packed with really young, really queer people from Joburg and South Africa, of all of whom the only thing that they knew about Binyavanga was that he is the author of I'm a Homosexual Mom, which I say, by the way, is not in How to Write About Africa, this collection of essays, because it appeared later, you know, that's an essay he wrote later in his life, and that's for a second volume when that's out. Uh, But but I was kind of astounded by this, right? I mean, these are people who might not even have known that he had written How to Write About Africa. I mean, they were 15 or, you know, they were 16. Uh, I mean, these are like, you know, post-millennials. And then a lot of other kinds of young people as well. But they kind of cheered him on. It was almost like being in a church. That's the best way I could describe this. It was like being in a church. So Binya would you know, stutter and then fail and uh, and sort of stumble. And then there'd be a kind of uh, you know roar of support from the crowd. Uh, or there'd be sighs if he cried. It was really like being in a church and watching some sort of very loved pastor or something like that deliver his last sermon and a whole sort of flock of congregants who were just hanging on every single word and and sort of moving with him and somehow feeling him in some level that I, I could not even understand. But it was incredible to watch, right? Um, and so this was one of the most beautiful and confounding things about his career is that he had these two essays, How to Write About Africa and I'm a Homosexual Mom which I think straight-jacketed him and what people thought of him into this idea of, you know, the the person who speaks back to the colony or the polemic writer, uh, the confessional writer, that sort of thing, which uh, was very limiting, which, you know, is clearly, clearly recognizable the moment you open this book. Uh, But there was a beauty in it as well. I mean, the deep kind of love that those essays inspired, it's not something that anyone... You can't open up a thing today, I mean, just last week, the events connected to how to write about Africa. There's a book, new book, literally called, I think Africa is not a country, uh, which got reviews in the New York Times and every publication around the world that was inspired by Pini essay. It's kind of astonishing, you know, that sort of velocity, but that kind of permanence for an essay like that to have, who writes essays like that, right? Who else can you think of has written something you know, a mere four, you know, a mere thousand words, which have lived on and grown almost with a kind of you know, supernatural momentum as every month and year has passed on. So there is a beauty to them, but I think that the, there's a very perceptive review in The Guardian by Nasreen Malik, who's a really smart British columnist, which I think really gets to the sort of heart of this, which is when you read the the full range of Binyavanga's writing, how to write about Africa seems like indeed the most tame thing that he's done, right? Uh, Because the other stuff is just so much more exciting. Um, And I mean, so it's, I think, astonishing to experience that, how new generations seem to recreate this idea of Binyavanga, which is completely different from mine or yours or someone else's and just, I think, was as equally welcomed by him and thrilled him just as much. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, there's so much to say. Um,
0: and this, this thoughts you've, you've left with us Achal about the the numerous Binyavangas and how each Binyavanga is different to, to, to another person. I think one thing that I was personally frustrated by when I first started reading his work was precisely the fact that he was so hard to pin down. Um, especially, you know, in my kind of political maturation, I was very much a person who wanted to know, you know, which which camp are you on? What are your politics? I, wanna, I want it in a kind of bite-sized form so I can sort of sort you out, perhaps in a kind of uh, friend-enemy distinction, um, as, as young folks do. And as we were having this conversation, I mean, Dario, you were saying earlier that um, what stood out about Binyavanga was his... His irreverence, the fact that nothing was was gospel to him. We've spoken about his magnanimity and his and his generosity. Um, I mean, does it does it matter that uh, you couldn't really quite politically place Binyavanga? Should one try to? Is it is it futile trying to? Uh, is it besides the point? Um, you know, what do we make of, of his politics? Um, is is that even something to to, to care about?
3: I, I think he um, showed us how to be restless when we were seeking for the truth. So of course he did his own self-examination to try and understand himself. Um, and I, I, I think he encouraged um, truth-seeking in, in the people around him. So those would be the ways of thinking about his his lasting impact on, on the community and the people he, he knew well, I think.
0: what would you like to add?
4: So, Achal, I will tell you to not try to pin down Binyar politically. He will disappoint you. Um, I think in a recent conversation between me and Achal, I was sharing, I kind of, you know, I, I guess it's grief, but I was just thinking about how I'm kind of glad that Binyar is not here in the current political climate, because he would have said such reckless things that we would never be able to save him from the world so probably in covid <laughs> Binya would have been an anti-vaxxer today morning and writes like a frantic essay on it um he would have been like probably a trump supporter and then he switches sides and you know like chaotic chaotic stuff so but as dare is saying i think there was something deeply uh, that he heard about not just truth-seeking but also truth-telling so the truth as it happens in the moment um, and i think that has had big implications for him at least if i can speak for like kenya and parts of the rest of africa that because of the way that he seeks truth then has become something that the rest of us don't think he is uh just because he's so frantic in the way that he would say things, he would tweet um, and tweet in the moment, right? And he could probably like, we'll just call you a liar. And then after that, he would think about it and then he will come back. But the time he's coming back to say that you are really not a liar because he has done so much investigative work, the liar has already gone out. So I think there's something that he teaches us about curiosity in deep deep ways and curiosity that's not structured in ways that need to cement truth as a thing that can only exist within you know you are leftist or you are Marxist or you are a right winger like to actually tell what is in the way that you experience it in the moment and I think that's really important.
3: Yes, he certainly would have found the last presidential election very interesting. He would have had things to say about the uh, Kenyan dynasty. He would have had many things. So um, one of the things was in the post-election violence, there was a group of us who then started to investigate and write stories about what had happened and to go around the country seeking out these stories. And I remember the one thing, again, it's that kind of excitement about stuff. So one of the stories that came out was that there was this small community in um, near in Westlands where a group of people who were from different ethnic groups in Kenya had decided to protect their community um, and he wanted a story about them so I went and I met people who I didn't know and I tried to understand what made this community tick over the post-election violence why did you stay together how did you do it Um, and it's that kind of thing that it's like looking for the human story behind the politics I think was more is more interesting and would have been more interesting to him than the mere politicking itself and that probably explains why he could shift from one view to another because he was seeking the human um story and the truth beneath it all so i agree with you Neil.: it's
0: hmm. incredibly well said by by both of you uh Asha, would you would you like to add to that and due to time this this will have to be the last word
1: for me, I felt I met at an age uh, when I was probably more leftist than him, but it was also an age when I was more leftist then than I am now. Uh, part of my life is activism, and uh, I believe very strongly in the things that I believe in and what I'm fighting for. Doesn't mean, I think, however, that I go to sleep and wake up sort of you know, thinking of Marx. I uh, was really attracted to Binyavanga by the possibilities that he offered me to expand my imagination honestly, uh, to find new ways of being myself and being in this world. That sounds a little pompous and grand, but it was actually quite true in a practical sense. That is what he did uh, with every conversation I had with him. And so I I don't think I went to him with an idea of having my politics affirmed or or, uh, anything like that, which is why I wasn't disappointed. I think I was also not Kenyan, and I think that there were some rifts around his political positions in Kenya around the election violence of 2007 and eight and subsequently and so forth that I think were very, you know, minor grades of difference, but I think could have been much, uh, could have hurt far more. I think if you were Kenyan and, you know, you, you were participating in that kind of system, um, which I think would have affected me differently, I suppose, because I just didn't feel it as Im- immediately or as intensely. And so I don't think for me it was ever a kind of problem in some sense that Binyam might have often libertarian views or right-wing views. You know, one of the the points of connection that we had, and I I think this was just very so meaningful for me, and this is a really absurd example, so please forgive me for it, is a mutual love then of a short-lived Russian magazine called The Exile, which was published out of Moscow, you know, a a ridiculous uh, publication, which sort of skewered everyone and everything and had a, a a contest every year for the worst foreign correspondent award, which somehow always went to whoever was working at the New York Times, who for their work, for their efforts would get rewarded with uh, being hit with a pie. I, and I think it was full of horse semen or something like that. This was an annual contest. That I, I, I only say this, I know this is disgusting, but I only say this because it was an absurd publication with an absurd sense of humor about uh, newly liberated non-communist Russia of the 90s. And we were obsessed with it. We read every single thing on there. We'd go through the archives of it. We'd look at restaurant reviews. Um, and it was, it, is a fa- it was a fantastic magazine. Uh, and it was really worth sort of being obsessed over. But I couldn't have thought of anyone better to obsess over it with than... Binyavanga Wainana from Nairobi, because somehow I think our sort of kindred spirit for this magazine was more important to me almost than, you know, I'm sure I could find fans of it in New York, but they just wouldn't have been interesting to talk to about it. Um, So for me, uh, that idea of uh, kind of fearlessly grappling with the entire world and people in it without thinking too much and allowing instinct to take over and and to do the work of uh, life was actually a really important lesson and i'd like to to carry that forward even now i think because it was evidence i think of what dio talked of earlier his fundamental generosity right i mean the ability to be able to look at you and not form the kinds of preconceptions mean, we all form preconceptions about everybody right but you know god knows and i say this as a member of the tribe leftists they're doing this so much. I mean, you look at people; you've got like whole judgments, right, until the end of your life that have been, you know, written out in your head about them. Binia never had that. And what a better way to live, right? That—that that is something I, I, I adored about him, and I'd like to cultivate it myself.
0: Ah, uh, that's—it's been absolutely wonderful uh, to hear this from all of you, and, and binya It's reflected in his his life, his writing, everything he did. That he was. He was truly a bench. And I think to conclude, uh, I want to read the last paragraph from the introduction to the essay collection, which we are discussing today, How to Write About Africa, which is edited by Ashal and which just came out recently with Hamish Hamilton. And the introduction is written by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And what she writes about Bunya, she says, I learned so much from him as a person and as a writer. His humor and mischief, his wit, his generosity, his optimism, His kindness, his astonishing brilliance, his contradictions, his vulnerability and his open aching humanness. He was one of the greatest minds I've ever known. He was one of those rare people whose unique complexity is so difficult to fully express that I cannot help but resort to boring language. He was an original. And I think, as everyone has been discussing today, Benya was able to see the originality in every person and May he rest his peace, may his memory be a blessing, and may we all continue to learn from him. Thank you all so much for coming on today to talk about Binyavanga, and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. You're listening to the Africa as a Country podcast. I've been in conversation with Neo Musangi, Dayo Foster, and Ashal Prabhala. And thanks very much to Sean Jacobs, who produced this episode. He was beside behind the scenes, uh, other than a quick cameo, and listen to the podcast on whichever platform you do find this on YouTube as well. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.